This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca. And welcome to the Thursday edition of Game Misconduct as we recap the 2021-22 season. And of course, congratulate the Colorado Avalanche on their third Stanley Cup championship. And the guy that was on the call for NHL International with Kevin Weeks, of course, the great EJ Raddick. How are you, EJ? I am wonderful, Don. It was a great experience. Uh, I was kind of hoping we'd get a Game 7 because it would have been such a great storyline. You know, ABC, Tuesday night, 8 o'clock, Lightning trying to win their third straight, the Avalanche trying to fend them off, great players and a great moment. It just would have been a really, would have been something special. But, you know, in the end, it wasn't to be the Avs were just, uh, were just too good and really impressed with the way they were able to shut things down once they got a 2-1 lead in that game six. So uh, congratulations to Joe Sackick and uh, all the Avs. My buddy Chris McFarlane, who uh, played college club hockey at Pace University when I was the head coach, believe it or not, a long time ago. He's the assistant GM of the Avalanche, and now his name is going on the Stanley Cup, so I'm really proud of him. Yeah, no, we actually got a, um, a tweet from somebody. I was going to save it for later on, but Dan tweeted, for EJ, was Avs assistant general manager McFarlane a teammate or player of yours at Pace? And you just answered the question. Yeah, he was a player. He was a player while I was a coach there. And uh, Chris was just, you know, just real quick, Chris was a, just a great kid. He was a hard-working player as a young man. And I got to, you know, as I was kind of climbing my way through the different media and Chris was, you know, going to school. He ended up going to law school. He he got an internship for the NHL. He'd be at games all the time, you know, watching, taking notes. Uh, he ended up getting an opportunity when the Columbus Blue Jackets came into the league to be uh, to work for Doug McLean, and he worked there for several years with the Blue Jackets before moving on to Colorado. And you know, uh, he's really put in his time. He's he's not an ex player or an ex coach or an ex-roommate of a player or somebody's brother. I mean, this is a guy that has really worked on his own to get up the ladder of the National Hockey League, the highest level. And so I'm really, really proud of him and just a terrific guy. So uh, good for him. And uh, the Avalanche win the Cup. And another one of those um, examples where you don't necessarily need great goaltending. You just need a great goaltender, you need your goaltender to play great. Because Darcy Kempford, to me, is going to be placed in that pantheon of uh, Niemi, the, the Campbells of the world, the Javi Bulins of the world, where you don't think of them as great goaltenders, but they got a ring. And guys like Jockaman and Lundqvist, they don't. It just It's strange because if it's all about goaltending, then you would think Colorado would have no shot, but their team was just so good in front of them I guess as you build a team, if you can allocate those funds and have the type of team that the Avalanche had, both defensively and offensively, that I guess you can get away with would be maybe just slightly above average goaltender. Yeah, I mean, Darcy Kemper had a really good year. He's been a good goalie for the last couple of years. I mean, he had that eye injury in round one. You know, the, Jared Bednar said after the fact that, like, he's had to retrain his eye and he's had some real challenges as he's moved forward. He missed some time. So, you know, for me, I don't know if we got the real Darcy Kemper in this series. But, you know, he was good enough and the Avalanche 
you know, I mean, listen, they swept two series, and then the other two were six-game series. Um, he was good enough when he had to be. He made enough timely saves. And they just played really well in front of him. I mean, I, again, in game six, I mean, the first 50 minutes of the game, Don, the, the, the Lightning had one inner slot shot, and it was the Stamkos goal. And that was it. So, you know, you or I might have been able to be in there and keep it relatively close when nobody's getting those kind of really good scoring chances. And the third period, I don't think the Lightning even got their first shot for the first, like, 10, 11 minutes of the period. But, you know, he, that's what happens in the you know the game. We've seen it over the years. I mean, I, I, I don't know when you talk about ranking these guys. I mean, I thought, you know, Niemi was a real struggle that year in 2010, and they ended up winning because Philadelphia had worse goaltending issues. Um, I thought I think Corey Crawford was a really good goalie um, and made a lot of good saves for the Blackhawks during their run when he had the last two cups in 13 and 15. Um you know, we could go through them and, and judge different ones. But at the end of the day, you have to have a good team, and your goalie has to play well. Of course. And if the team is good enough, if the team is good enough, the goalie only has to be good. He doesn't have to be great. And I think in this case, you know, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, in this final for sure, Darcy Kemper was, you know, good at best, really, based on what he faced. And that was a, that was enough because mm-hmm. the Avalanche were just too good, and the Lightning were too beat up. You know, what I was thinking in that third period is the the Lightning are now going through what the Islanders went through the year before, what the Rangers went through in that conference final in 2015 where you need a goal and you just can't get anything. I remember that game seven at the Garden against the Lightning in that conference final. You would think that the Lightning were up 6 nothing. I mean, the Rangers were down a goal and they just weren't going to get it. Lightning, the, same, the Islanders, the same thing. It just felt like... It that one goal lead, the way they play it, seemed insurmountable, and that's what the Lightning ended up getting uh, fed. What they've been doing to other teams, just not being able to get a sniff in that final period. Yeah, I mean you're exactly right. That's exactly what it was. It was just that they weren't able to to get an opportunity to to get chances. I mean they had the one play with uh, they had the one one-timer, but it, it didn't develop as quickly as you want You want there, and Kemper was able to get over and make a save, and, you know, they just they just couldn't find a way to really get those good chances, and even at the end, you know, when they had the goalie pulled, I guess they had the one chance where Landeskog blocked the shot with a skate, and then his skate blade came out. They just never could regather the puck and take advantage of it, and Kale McCarr went down on the forecheck and kind of helped pin the lightning in in the final second, so... Yeah, you're right. I mean, they just couldn't get anything going offensively in the game. And, you know, really it was weird, Don, because they started out the game well. They got the first goal. They had a power play in the first 30 seconds. They got the first goal, and it looked like they were going to be in a good position on home ice. But they just faded as the game went on. It looked like the the Avalanche game strength, and they got some breaks in the game as well. I wanted to get your thoughts on um, the aftermath of Game 4 and the way John Cooper handled that. And, and I, I really gave it to him on the podcast and I'm a fan I think he's in the conversation as the best coach in sports right now but I really thought he came off bad after game four first of all they've benefited from the too many men on the ice call and the way he reacted it's one thing if he turned over the table and got mad but this soliloquy and the almost borderline to tears for a team that had not been eliminated yet I really found the whole thing interesting and of course he apologized after the fact 
if it was strategic, I didn't think it was a great strategy, although they did win game five, but uh, I didn't think it came across great. What was your reaction to how he reacted post-game four? Well, I think that, you know, these guys are all emotional in the moment, right? I mean, that they're, they're so connected to their teams. I mean, they're trying to he's, – he's coaching a team that he knows guys are – you know, this team is on life support, right? they got a number of guys injured. They're missing a key player at point. So he understands how important it was to win game four. And what, you know, they're on home ice. The game is in overtime. And his team, really, I mean, they didn't have, they didn't get a sniff in overtime, Donnie. I mean, the, the light, the, the avalanche were just pushing, pushing, pushing. It was like, oh. Outshot him 10 3. unfold that way. You know, clearly it was too many men on the ice. But to your point, I mean, uh, you know, they benefited from missing too many men on the ice call the previous year. But, you know, I, I just think at, at the end of the day, when these guys come out after games, and they're just so much emotion. They're so wrung out. I tend to give him a break. I mean, you know, he he, he said his, uh, he said what he wanted to say in like two minutes, and then he left the stage. And he was really disappointed, and he was right. It was too many men on the ice. But you know, in the moment, I think that, like I said, there, there's a lot of emotion. And you know, could he have handled it better? I'm sure he could have. And I think he made the quick the quick reverse the next day because that was my thinking is you know what by doing this you know there are you know we've talked about it for so long Donnie between the, the old show and our time here talking on the podcast is that there are bad calls happen every game every you know it just happens it's a hard game to officiate and sometimes it doesn't go your way and in a playoff series you really have to keep the focus on what's next because if the players get caught up in things that don't go their way, well, they're really not going to be focused on what they need to do next. And I think we saw that a little in the St. Louis-Colorado series when when Craig Berube and, and some of the team got caught up in the whole Jordan Bennington injury issue. And it was pretty clear to me that that was an accidental play, and yet they were focused on Nazem Kadri and his history and and I thought it took them a while to regain their focus. So, you know, I do think John Cooper the next day reversed field and got them on the right track. And if you if you heard, you know, Ryan McDonough and some of their players, I mean, they were like, hey, you know, these kind of things happen and we got to get ready for the yeah. next game. So they were able to reverse course. But, you know, yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great look. But, you know, I, I just know this, that they're pouring so much into this. And, oh, and, sure. and I know John Cooper, he knew the value of that game. He probably realized in his head, like, boy, Losing this game, being down three to one to this team, you know, it's almost as if we lost in the moment. But they were able to figure things out and get back on on track. But it was, uh, you know, it's the way it goes. But it was clearly too many men on the ice. But then again, the Lightning, I think, had seven guys on the ice. So I don't know what you do there. <laughs> right. It just and like you said, they benefited because of uh, too many men on the ice for the game-winning goal against the Islanders the year before. So uh, it's just one of those plays that it's going to happen. And I just thought he could have handled it better, but I, it doesn't affect how I feel about him as a coach. I think he's absolutely terrific. And as somebody who covers all the sports, I don't know too many coaches right now that are better than John Cooper, even after the loss. Yeah, you know, the thing about John Cooper, he's just really interesting to talk to. He's fun to be around. Um, I got to talk to his wife. I got to meet his children when I was down in, in Tampa. And I really loved talking to his wife for about 45 minutes. And, uh, 
I just uh, he's just a fascinating guy, and he, he he likes to have some fun, and he's you know, but he's a sharp thinker. I mean, like you know, he, everything he does, there's some you know, like all great coaches, there's some calculation, and I'm sure there was some calculation into that. I mean, let's face it, in Game Five. What happened late in Game Five? There was a too many men on the ice call against the Avalanche. So you know maybe the fact that it was it, it turned into a story for a few hours. You know, referees—they're human beings too. They hear the news, they hear the stories. So who knows? But John Cooper is a terrific, terrific coach. He's been blessed to have a great team, and the, he really knows that too. When you talk to him, he knows how fortunate he has been to. Uh, to have some great, great players on that bench in front of them. All right, a couple of things before we get to the tweets, EJ. What did you think of Fiala to the L.A. Kings? Well, I think it was a great move for L.A. I guess they signed him now seven times seven, eight. It's a lot of money, yeah. Fiala. Um, um, but he's, you know, he's a, he's a he's a speed player. They, you know, it's hard to find guys. You know, it's hard to get players. Let's face it. I mean, you know, if, if you don't draft them, it's hard to get them if they're in their prime or if there isn't something, a little damage around them for some reason. So, um, you know, he's a, he's a player that – he was a good player in Nashville. And he had a really significant leg injury. He was traded to Minnesota. Over time, he's been able to figure it out. He's got great speed. He can really back you off. L.A. wants to play, you know, a, a fast game. He fits with them. They give up a first-round pick, and then they, uh, you know, they give up a good prospect – in Brock, who I think could be a player for Minnesota. On the other hand, for Minnesota, for Wild fans, they might say, well, why couldn't we get more? Why couldn't we get a player? The problem in Minnesota is they've got a lot of dead money on their cap due to those buyouts to Parisi and Suter. They've got, I think, $12 million of dead money this year and then $14 million of dead money in each of the next two seasons. So Billy Guerin is, is hoping and is probably has to try to find young players that he can bring in on entry-level contracts that, you know, that they come in and play for them. You know, that's why a Matt Boldy was such an important player for them to add to the mix last year. He's on an entry-level contract. So they need guys like that to come in and be players. And so maybe Brock will be a, a player that, uh, you know, Brock Faber could be a player that can, can do that. I mean, uh, he's uh, I saw him at the World Juniors. I was I was impressed by him. Maybe he's a guy that can come into the National Hockey League and be a, a player and help you on a, on a on a low contract as an entry level contract guy. Mm. So so we'll see. But uh, that's that's the both sides of it. And I'm sure the Wild didn't want to trade him, but issues that they have to you know be careful of. And so he's a complimentary piece in my view. But he'll be a really good complimentary piece, I think, in L.A. where they have a lot of good young players and they have centers and D in place at least the top of their group, and he can come in and, and, and help them uh, help their offense be a little bit better. So Pierre-Luc Dubois rumored to come to the Rangers, and, and that makes sense just from you know the line standpoint. He would be a great second-line center, played with Panarin in Columbus, but I just don't know how you afford him, and I think if you have to give up Heedle, then you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, I think, anyway. So I know they've got a relationship with Winnipeg. I know that Winnipeg wants to move. Uh, Dubois because he said he's going to leave as a free agent uh, when he, when his contract is up in two years. I just don't know how they make it fit financially, and would you give up a heedle to make it happen? Well, I mean, you have Dubois for two years, right? I mean, I think he's got two more yes. years before he's unrestricted, so 
I mean, if you don't feel, I mean, you're going to have to pay Heedle at some point, too. And if you feel like Dubois is a better player, and he is certainly a number two center, right? I mean, he's somebody that fits that mold. He's a big, strong guy as well. Um, maybe you do it. I mean, maybe you do it. I got to look at what he's making now and how it fits into everything else. Maybe it makes sense. I mean, that's kind of where the Rangers are. I mean, the problem for the Rangers is, like, you know, a lot of people want to play in New York, and they've got an attractive team right now, but, you know, the cap is the cap, and they're already committed money to Fox, money to Zibanejad, but it's somebody that's just irking. They're probably, you know, that's that's going to turn out to be a great signing at the dollar level it is, but when his contract expires in a couple of years, that's going to go up exponentially. So, you know, and they've got others. Criders on a, a pretty sizable deal, and you go down the line. I mean, so... They're not going to be able to fit everybody, but, you know, maybe they feel like, hey, we're close now. If we add Dubois, we're better, and we got him locked in for two years at a reasonable price. Let's take a shot at it and try to win this year and next year. You know, let's try to win during these two this two-year window. I mean, that's sometimes the way you have to think, and then the idea being that when this two years ends, I mean, if circumstances change, maybe you can keep them. If they don't, maybe you can't. So, uh you know, you, you think about it that way, but you know they, they know how they feel about Hedo, right? They they they've watched him and they know how they feel about him. And if they feel like that uh, Dubois is a better player, and I think he is, mm. then if they can get him in for that price, you make the deal and you try to win in these next two years, and then you you worry about it after that. Yeah, Dubois restricted, so they'd have to deal with that. Um. And then he's an unrestricted free agent in two years. So you'd have to work something out if you got him. Yeah. yeah. His contract is up now, then, you're saying. Yeah, he's, he's, a, yeah, he's a restricted free agent. Uh, so the contract, that's, that's, he doesn't, he's not eligible for unrestricted free agency for another two years. See, that's the problem, though. You get him, and now you have to sign him. Right. And, I mean, I, again, I'd have to really sit down and, and do the math with the Rangers – cap numbers but I know they've got a couple of guys when you put when you add up you know three or four or five players they're already at 40 million I mean like you know when you think about again Fox Zibanejad Truba what's that almost and Panarin I mean I mean I, I mean I forgot the biggest one on the I mean you're looking at like 50 million dollars for like six players well, seven they, players I mean, what do they have they like the bat- They've got like 13 million of cap space to be able to address Cop, address Strom, uh, and and then you've got like guys like Miller who's going to be do a, a deal at the end of next year. Exactly. So, there's a lot of things you have to consider for the future. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there, but but he does seem like the perfect player to bring here. He's played with Panarin before, second line center. Um, Heedle was great though for them in the playoffs, so I, I think Heedle's ready to pop. But, boy, if you were able to make that work where you could keep Heedle on a third line and then you could lose Strom and and have Dubois replace Strom on that line with Panarin and maybe you could figure out a way to keep Cop. But that that's way over our pay grade trying to figure out all these numbers. It makes sense hockey-wise, but you got to fit it in. Yeah. I'm just looking at it right now. I mean, you have Panarin at 11-6. You have Zibanejad at, uh, at 8-5. You've got Kreider at six five, so right there, that's four. That's twenty five million plus for three players. Now you've got Truba and Fox on the back end. That's seventeen and a half. So now you're over forty for five players. You know, and then you add in 
you know, Shesterkin, and you're over, you're you're close to fifty million for six guys. You're somewhere between forty-five and fifty million for six players. So, and then you're going to have to worry about down the road, you know, Lafreniere and you know, Capo if you keep them, and uh, you know, other players. They just brought back the kid from Russia, so uh, you know, I, there's a lot on the table here, and. There's a lot of different ways you can move these pieces around, and it'll be really interesting to watch Chris Drury, what he decides to do. But, you know, with Pierre-Luc Dubois needing a new deal, I mean, like, you know, that's that's challenging. You know, that's challenging, unless you want to do a two-year, unless he'll do a two-year deal with you. But, you know, he doesn't have the ability to be unrestricted, but we've seen Pierre-Luc Dubois force his way out of places in the past. Yes. So that's, you know, he's someone that's not afraid to voice his displeasure and sit out. So, I I mean, to me, it'd be nice, listen, from a Ranger fan standpoint, it'd be nice to have McDavid, it'd be nice to have (laughs) McKinnon, it'd be nice to have McCarr, I mean, it'd be nice to have everybody. But the cap is the cap, and, you know, it's, I'll be fascinated to see what Chris Drury decides to do at the end of the day here. Yeah, and so. maybe moving a piece. I know there's been rumors about Panarin, although I don't think that's an easy contract to move. But so where, where where can he move Panarin? At a le- like he's got a no move clause. Right. He specifically wanted to come to New York, so he's not. He's almost. I mean, I don't know what place you could send him that would take him with the full contract where he would want to go enough to leave a place that he really wanted to be. So I, I hear this talk about Panarin. I just don't know where he's going. Right. I, I don't know either. And he's a player. You know, he's still a really good player. Yeah, he's a great player, now, but it's a lot of money, and he has a no-movement clause. And I know new, I, Larry Brooks has told me that, like, no-movement clauses, listen, if you really talk to a player and say, we don't want you, you know, why would he fight to stay? But a guy that, you know, wanted to be a Ranger, wanted to be on an original six team, there's only a handful of places you probably could convince him to go, and they'd have to fit that money under the cap. It just really, the circumstances make it almost impossible. That's the question. That's the question I say. Where is that place? Yeah. Can you think of a place where he's, where you you know, our Terry Panera wants, to, that would be willing to go, and then once he's willing to go there, that is willing to take on $11 million almost $12 million of a cap hit for a player that's in his early 30s now and is likely going to be moving backwards production-wise. I mean, you know, these are, these are the challenges when you sign players to long contracts in their late 20s is that, you know, those contracts, can, if, if they don't pay dividends for you in the early stages, they inevitably, with yeah. almost with rare exceptions, become bad contracts. Yeah, that's what the Yankees are you know, weighing right now, talking about Aaron Judge, you know, giving a, giving a long contract to a guy that's going to be 31 when the contract starts. It's, uh, yeah, you know, it's easy for right. the fans yeah. to look at the now, but you got to think about the back end. So true. I mean, I, you're almost better in baseball, such a different animal, but you're almost better if you can identify a guy and like him as much. You almost want to give him that contract when he's 26, even if it's ahead of the game. Because you can give them a long contract and get the better years. Yeah. But, you know, because Judge is having an unbelievable year this year. And who's to say he won't have two or three or four more good ones? But if you got to sign up for 10, you know, you're you're buying a lot of years that may not be near as good. So, yeah. who knows? All, this, all these sports teams, I mean, all the leagues, they all have their different challenges. They all have different systems under which they work. 
Uh, one thing's for sure, you know, whatever you pay a guy today, you're probably going to have to pay him more tomorrow. So if you figure out a way to pay him early and get the better years, you're probably best suited to do that. Because uh, in the end, if you wait till tomorrow and you still pay him, you're going to be paying him more, and you're probably going to be sorry you signed that contract at some point down the road. Well, let's knock out a few tweets before uh, we let you go. And speaking of dreaming, Angelo looks like he's dreaming, uh, hoping as a as a Devil fan. Do you think that the Bruins will send Pasternak to the Devils for the second overall pick and some other pieces before draft night? I'd be hard-pressed to think that's going to happen. I mean, like, the Bruins are hard to figure out what they're doing right now. I mean, they fired Cassidy. Bergeron's coming back, it looks like. Uh, the word on the street is that they're going to hire Jim Montgomery as their head coach, although that's not finalized yet. So we'll see if they decide to do that or not. I was kind of hoping Greg Cronin, who's been in the minor league coach in Colorado, would get that job. He interviewed, but, I mean, Jim Montgomery looks like he's the lead candidate right now. I thought Cassidy Quinn would have a shot at that, too. I thought David Quinn was uh, David Quinn's name came up quite a bit in that, and uh, you know, again, it's not official, so you know, we're just giving you the what we're hearing uh, report-wise. But you know, for the Bruins to trade Pasternak, I mean, why do you want if you're going to trade Pasternak, why do you want Bergeron to come back? Uh, why are you why are you keeping Marshawn? Why are you you know, like you might want to trade guys that if, you know you're almost rebuilding at right. that stage. So you know, I think that. You know, Pasternak's contract situation is something that has to be worked out, but this is a great player. And, um, you know, if the Boston Bruins were, were going into a rebuild, I'd say, okay, that makes sense. But they're really not. They're not. Not if Bergeron so, comes I, back. I, yeah. yeah, I would say it's unlikely. I would say it's yeah. really unlikely. But if, there's a, if they get to a stage, though, with, with Pasternak where he wants, uh, you know, a lot of money and they just decide they don't want to pay him, then, then he's going to be on the market. And then it's a matter of what you can, you know, what you can trade. But Boston's not in a, not in a situation like Minnesota where they can't get players back. So whereas, you know, they they might want to, they might want players as opposed to a second round pick, which could be a good player. You know, it could be either Slavkovsky or Shane Wright. I think it's probably more likely to be Slavkovsky, who looks like a really talented young player, a big strong winger, but. You know, for me, I, 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 you know, again, it's just hard pressed to figure what exactly the Bruins are doing right now. I think that's a last resort for them to trade Pasternak. Uh, David Hines says, "What should we expect for the Kraken going into their second year? Goaltending is still a question, and the fans here are under the belief uh, Hackstall should be on the hot seat if they don't improve." Well, I think they. I mean, let's be honest. Um, you know, they were never going to the Golden Knights. I mean, they came in with the, you know, that that bar was way too high, so that not, that was not going to happen. Now, on the flip side, what they ended up doing was really not very good at all. I mean, they ended up uh, with fewer points in their first season than the Columbus Blue Jackets did in their first year, and, and you know, the rules were much more favorable to this Kraken than they were to the Blue Jackets 20 years ago. So, it was a... Uh, you know, it wasn't a very good job. I don't know what else to say. They made some miscalculations. The goalies weren't good, uh, and that was problematic. So um, I think they have a lot of cap room, though. I think they're going to try to be a player to help uh, help their team get better. I think they'll be, they'll be willing to go out and maybe trade for players who have contracts that teams are trying to unload but are still good players. 
And I think there's a pressure on them to be better. I mean, nobody expects them to, like I say, to be the Golden Knights. But people did expect them to be better, and they weren't. And so I think, yeah, there's probably some pressure to, you know, hey, let's get this thing better. I think there's probably some pressure on the coach. There's probably some pressure even on the manager because he's the one who put this all together. So uh, we'll see what they do in the offseason. But they've got room to spend spend money, and I think they're going to try to do a little bit more of that and try to see if they can persuade some players to come to Seattle. And, you know, it's not, let's face it, it's not a destination really after, after year one. So uh, they may have to try to see if they can pick up players, like I said, via trade. Like, you know, like let's say, you know, we're just talking about all these guys for the Rangers. If they're looking to unload a contract, maybe they can send it to Seattle as part of a way to help alleviate mm-hmm. a cap crunch for them. So we'll see how it plays out for the, for the Kraken. But I do expect them to be pretty active. Uh, Tony, can the Leafs do anything worthwhile that can finally get them over the hump? They're a second-round team at best without certainly uh, best without certainty at goaltending at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen. The Leafs lost in a seven-game series to the Tampa Bay Lightning, who were healthier than they were in the final, right? And you know, I talked to people in Colorado, and they said, you know, we watched that Toronto series a lot against Tampa because because we play a lot. You know, they're 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 kind of similar to us which I thought was kind of interesting. So, um, you know, I like the Toronto Maple Leafs team. I, I just think that the problem they have, we talked about it earlier about signing guys at certain points of their career. I think that the John Tavares contract is one that is, is kind of haunt them a little bit because they didn't need additional, that kind of expenditure for additional help up front. They signed a guy that was, in, again, in his later 20s. Now it's been into his 30s. Um, John Tavares is a hell of a player. But you had Matthews, you had Marner, heck, you had Kadri as your number two center at 4.5 against the cap. was really a great contract. Um, you could add to your defense when you're not stuck with all that money you know, up front. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Jack Campbell, or there's been some talk linking Jack Campbell to the Devils. Maybe I mean he's. Uh, I think they still need an upgrade at that position, but it's hard to do much of an upgrade when you're limited cap wise. I thought they finished their season with a, a pretty good group of defensemen when they added Giordano to the mix. Um, but you know, still the, the, the cap challenge is there. You wonder, John, if they're going to have to look and say, okay, maybe it's Nylander that we have to move to create some cap space to add another defenseman, but. I, I think that they got a lot of high-end players there still. And, uh, you know, it's really the baggage they're carrying right now of all these first-round losses. It's just it's really unfortunate because if they had been in the Pacific Division, Donnie, they may have, they might have easily been in the Western Conference Final. I mean, they have a good team. They just, they just got it. They've had some bad matchups and some bad fortune, and they've underperformed at times. But, you know, they've got some good players there, and I'll be I'll be curious to see uh, what moves they make in the offseason to try to be better. Yeah, we talked about it at the time. I mean, everybody wants to kill them. They blew a 3-2 lead out in the first round again, but look who they lost to. <laughs> they lost to a team that very easily could have won their third straight Stanley Cup. So uh, yeah. I, I, I can kill them for the past, but I can't necessarily kill them for what they did this year. You've been a gentleman all year, EJ. Um, really appreciate all the work you were able to help us do during the course of this season. And I want you to have a glorious summer, although it sounds like you're going to be very, very busy during it. But try to enjoy it anyway. 
I will, and I'm excited because I'm getting the opportunity to call the World Juniors uh, in August. It's the makeup for the for the canceled tournament that took place uh, that was supposed to take place in December. So they are doing, I guess, a makeup for that. It's going to be held in Edmonton in early August. I think it's the 9th through the 20th, and uh, I'll be calling the Team USA games uh, for NHL Network. So I'm really excited about that opportunity. And you know, it's it's the middle of the summer and. People aren't necessarily thinking about hockey, but there's some really good young players, obviously, in that tournament. So uh, it's going to be exciting for me to get that chance. So we'll be busy, but life goes on. And, Donnie, hopefully I'll see you in the summer at some point. I'd love to see you and those kids because you guys are looking good. We'll try to get together down the shore sometime. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. All right. You got it, Donnie. All right, that is the great, and I mean great, EJ Raddick. Phenomenal for us all year long, helping us out with any question we had and uh, did a great job uh, covering the sport. And I didn't get a chance to see it, but it sounds like he did a great job on NHL International Call in the Final, and he's going to get a chance to do World Juniors. So looking forward to that. That's always fun to check that stuff out. Um, As far as we're concerned moving forward, we're kind of just play out how the summer goes. Um, no exact timetable when the podcast will be back. We'll try to do some things sprinkled in during the course of the summer when there are big signings, big trades. We'll probably recap the draft as well as things happen. We'll definitely follow it up with a podcast, but it's tough to know exactly when that next time will be. So make sure you follow me on Twitter at, at Don LaGreca, and I will let you know the next time we'll have a podcast. And if something breaks... We'll have one, and if you want to just ask me a question, the best way to do that, at Don LaGreca with hashtag Game Misconduct. I'll certainly be around. So enjoy your summer. We'll talk to you very soon. This was the Thursday edition of Game Misconduct. This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca.